This is The Guardian. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. The first one happened in China. A city of 11 million people with almost no one on the streets. Almost nothing leaves or enters Wuhan. Back in January 2020, it seemed like an extreme measure to take. But as the virus spread to other countries and the scale of the threat was starting to dawn, other governments soon followed suit. Good evening. We start tonight with the unprecedented measures being enforced right across Italy to try to limit the spread of coronavirus. La declaración del estado de alarma afecta al todo el territorio español durante 15 días que podrán prorrogarse con la autorización del Congreso de los Diputados si fuera necesario. Stay home or face punishment. The words of French President Emmanuel Macron on Monday as the French government ramped up its lockdown restrictions across the country. And then came an announcement from Prime Minister Boris Johnson. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. It's now two years, almost to the day, since the first UK lockdown began. And we now have much more effective ways of preventing, treating and tracking COVID-19. But in that time, what have we learned about lockdowns and how well they really work? From The Guardian, I'm Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. Adam Kaczarski, as a professor of infectious disease epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, the COVID pandemic has been an enormously busy time for you. I'm wondering if there was a moment early on in 2020 when you thought the UK might need to go into lockdown. There was an accumulation of moments. One was in early February when I saw some initial evidence of pre-symptomatic uh, transmission for COVID. I think that's when it really struck me that we're going to need really quite substantial control measures. But I think in the UK context, it was really towards the end of February and that, that first weekend of March when we got much clearer ideas of what the fatality risk uh, was going to be. You're going to be looking at hundreds of thousands of deaths, a, a really overwhelmed uh, health system in terms of ICU requirements. I think 
even at first understand the impact of the lockdown in China was was a huge question. I think there's a lot of scepticism that for a respiratory infection like this, you could fully suppress transmission. But then for me, going back to those those earlier moments, it was apparent that um, the UK and many other countries were on a warring trajectory and we're going to need something dramatic uh, to get off it. The government's scientific advisers have warned that people will need to avoid unnecessary social contact for the best part of a year, alternating between strict and less strict measures to help intensive care units cope. So talk me through why governments might implement a lockdown. What is the point of doing it? Well, I think in early 2020, frankly, for a lot of governments, it was a panic measure. A lot of countries had got into a situation where they had cases, hospitalizations, deaths starting to go up. They didn't know where the infection was. Lockdown was effectively a measure that quarantined everyone. It reduced everyone's social contacts to try and get off this worrying trajectory, with a lot of the messaging countries saying they were going to introduce these measures for a couple of weeks. And of course, they weren't, because at the end of that two weeks, what's going to have changed? Right. So lockdowns were a slightly panicked attempt to buy some time initially. But if you're introducing a lockdown and all it's going to do is delay those cases and hospitalizations and deaths until you lift it, then presumably that has quite a limited sort of beneficial effect on your course through the pandemic. And presumably you have to change something during the lockdown for it actually to really have a benefit. I think that's a, a really important point that a lot of countries have grappled with in different ways. I think the ones who've been most successful in their strategy have used lockdown, particularly early on, as this last-ditch measure, but then moved to something where they're controlling their local outbreaks and transmission through more targeted, more sustainable measures. So some countries have done that at the border level. They've had strict restrictions on who's coming in, New Zealand, the Pacific Islands, Australia. Other countries, some of the East Asian countries, Singapore, South Korea, for example, have had domestic transmission ongoing, but have found ways of dealing with it without having to, to completely shut down the entirety of society. Here in the UK, we initially had this pretty strict lockdown with stay-at-home orders and all kinds of businesses closing their doors. But but different countries took different approaches. We, we saw Sweden taking a very light touch. In China, things were very strict, and many other countries were sort of somewhere in between. I'm just wondering what was the thinking behind these different approaches? I mean, did different countries have different goals or were some better able to control the virus without lockdowns or, or what? I think there was a mix of things going on. I and mean, I think a lot of countries factoring into their early decision making was the idea of sustainability that without at the time vaccines clearly on the horizon, there was this issue of if you introduce a measure, what's going to enable you to not have to rely on that measure for the next couple of years. And I think a number of factors influence the interpretation of, of what would have been sustainable, things like privacy constraints, things like the resources and acceptability within populations. I think some countries did have some pre-existing structural advantages, um, particularly Scandinavian countries that have smaller household sizes. And then feeding into wider things like sick pay available for employees, that's going to really change the behaviour and allow some of these less disruptive, more targeted measures to, to have more effect. So those are some of the things that might explain why countries ended up choosing to go down different routes. 
But what other factors affect how successful a lockdown is? What else goes into your models, for example? One is just the extent of change you would expect with different control measures. And this is something, particularly in early 2020, that's that's totally unprecedented. We saw in Wuhan, in social mixing data, um, there's about an 86% reduction in social contacts after their lockdown came in. So a really massive change in the structure of, of a society. In the UK, that was close to about a 75% reduction. So again, a very large reduction and enough to bring transmission down. But actually predicting ahead of time to what extent workplace closures, closure in different hospitality venues, closure of schools, predicting what effect that's going to have in actually reducing contacts in different settings in transmission is very difficult, particularly in a situation where those measures have never been introduced. But as well as contacts, we also need to think about the characteristics of the virus. So one is just the transmissibility. And then alongside that, you need to to look at the severity of the virus, things like fatality risk, how that changes, how vaccines have reduced your risk of severe disease, that's going to have an effect on actually if you introduce a lockdown in a highly vaccinated population, the impacts can be very different to introducing strict measures somewhere where there's a lot more susceptibility. Obviously, these factors have changed over the last two years. But if we look back at what difference lockdowns have made, there have been a lot of debates about whether the pros outweighed the cons and so on. Is that a difficult question to answer? I think it's often difficult because people are very vague in what they mean. I think we've seen a lot of different definitions. Some people talk about lockdowns and they mean any measure whatsoever. And some people only mean very, very strict Wuhan style stay at home. I think in, in most countries, we had a whole bundle of things implemented. But fundamentally, lockdowns are this mass untargeted way of reducing social contacts. I think just from basic biology, if you reduce the contacts to which transmission occurs, you're going to have a reduction in transmission. And we've seen that in the pandemic. If you look at social contact data in 2020 versus what transmission was doing, the the two track each other um, very closely. Whether it's a good or bad idea, I think in part, we need to be careful about hindsight and assess where countries were at the time in terms of the information and options they had available. But I think we have seen situations where lockdowns have been probably overused as a panic measure. And and during the Omicron waves, I think it's one example where countries that could have had much higher vaccine coverage are introducing lockdowns. I did think that was slightly absurd because they had much better tools through vaccination they could have used to reduce the impact of those waves. Just finally, Adam, you've been studying the pandemic, the impact of lockdowns and so on since this crisis began. And I'm wondering if there are lessons that have been learned about lockdowns in this pandemic and whether there are things you can say now as sort of modelers and such like, if we're going to do lockdowns in the future, when the next pandemic comes along, then this is what we would want to do differently. I think two things for me are the importance of having clear objectives and the importance of knowing what countries' constraints actually are. I think we saw a lot of measures that were introduced and lifted throughout the pandemic without really a clear idea of what countries are trying to do. And I think we also saw with constraints, a lot of countries had this sense that we can't possibly do what China did. You know, that's that's draconian. There's no way we can implement it. And then 
they got themselves into trouble and then they did implement that. If they'd earlier on had an idea of what they were and weren't willing to do, and there's some things around privacy that countries, that, that does seem to be a very hard red line. If they could outline those things and have those discussions before the next pandemic, I think it would really improve their ability to identify what those constraints are, what they're able to do. And then you can use understanding of epidemiology, you can use models to explore how you might be able to deploy those options. But I think ultimately, we want to be in a future where we're avoiding having to rely on lockdown type measures. You know, these really are, in many ways, medieval. A future pandemic strategy needs to be thinking about how to reduce the impacts of these epidemics, while also avoiding the, this huge society closing level of disruption. Adam, huge thanks for coming on and talking us through all this. It's just really great to have you on. Thank you. Thanks again to Adam Kaczarski. The Guardian has done a lot of great reporting, marking two years since the first lockdown in the UK, looking at the ways in which they've affected our lives. To have a read, head over to theguardian.com. Before you go, if you're interested in politics, then you should have a listen to our podcast, Politics Weekly UK. Award-winning Guardian columnist John Harris hosts a cast of voices from up and down the country as well as across the political spectrum. Listen to fast-paced, humorous and insightful takes on the week's political news every Thursday. Search for Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to never miss an episode. That's it for today. The producer was Madeline Finlay. The sound design was by Tony Onachuku. And the executive producer was Max Sanderson. See you next Tuesday. This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>